welcome to the Crosstalk Podcast, the podcast that brings together fitness and healthcare professionals to discuss topics that will help you become your best and healthiest version of yourself. I'm your host, Nate Reynolds, a physical therapist that specializes in orthopedics and CrossFit from beautiful upstate New York. Welcome to this week's episode of the Clinical Crosstalk Podcast. Today, I am talking with John Longo. John Longo is a physical therapist that is currently working and living in Albany, New York. He was a competitive runner all throughout college. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about some basic running principles, and then talking about what has been deemed uh, super shoes, uh, shoes that have actually started to uh, improve performance and technique. So, John, welcome to this week's episode. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me, man. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to catch up. Uh, I think that this is kind of a, an interesting topic, one that you know you're very passionate about. And I think as someone that you know I run recreationally, I would say that you know there's probably a lot of things that I don't know and that you know I can learn from you. Yeah, dude. Well, it absolutely goes the other way. I kind of was not very good at a whole lot of other stuff, which is kind of how running fell into my lap. So happy to share with whatever knowledge I can and hopefully pick up some of my own along the way from, from people like yourself. So John, tell me a little bit more about like your running background, kind of, you know, when you started running, where you ran in college. Running kind of all began in like seventh or eighth grade, something like that. Just kind of joining modified, um, you know, just an opportunity to hang out with a different group of people, stay a little active. And my mom was pretty good. So I figured, I guess, why not? was not much for contact sports. So football and soccer were kind of out of the question. And then, but I didn't really fall in love with it until probably like senior year of high school. And even still, I figured um, it was mostly a good way to just kind of make friends in college and wasn't really sure where it would take me. And then just kind of being around like a more serious group of people that um, were kind of passionate about it, I guess, kind of piqued my interest and just made me a little bit more passionate and a little bit more intense about it. So yeah, I ran all four years in college. And then after college, I dabbled in like the semi-pro ranks for a little bit and had, so we call it a kit deal, but I wasn't paid or anything, but I was given like shoes and a couple uniforms and stuff from Nike for like, probably it was like maybe just under a year. And then um, kind of injuries kind of kept mounting and then physical therapy school kind of picking up. So I was kind of at a little bit of a crossroads where I had to kind of sacrifice the, uh, the running or at least competitive running a little bit for focus on what is actually going to be my career one day. So, but yeah, and then took a couple of years off and my wife is a great runner. So when she started kicking my butt is kind of when I realized I should probably up my game again, kind of the competitive nature came back. So I have a lot of friends that you got into PT school and PT school, it's basically a full-time job. And then you're studying at night. And so it's, it's kind of ironic that we're probably in the worst shape we've ever been in during PT school. Yet we're trying to learn how to get people in better shape. I used to say that all the time, like sit in the back of the class and just kind of mumble to the people around me. Like, isn't it ironic that we are sitting for four hours to teach people how to stretch and how to move. It was mind-boggling to me and then after like pt school we all kind of find another niche to get kind of active in you know like i kind of found crossfit like that's kind of what i kind of enjoy kind of meeting people that way you know you get back into running 
unfortunately, you know, I, you know, the beer league softball doesn't really give me that competitive edge that, you know, I kind of miss, but, you know, picking up other hobbies like golf and CrossFit and trying to just find ways to stay active. And so the first topic that we're going to talk about is kind of some basic running principles. And so what is your advice for anyone that's kind of looking to get into running uh, kind of how to start gradually where you're not going to injure yourself right away? Yeah. So this is something that I'm actually like pretty passionate about. And my wife and I will, will talk to our friends a lot about it because they say all the time, like, Oh, you know, I've tried to run and it's not for me, or I don't know how you guys do that. So first, usually what I say is I kind of downplay it. And like I said with you, I was not very good at other stuff. So running kind of just fell into my wheelhouse, but yeah, like getting started with running is honestly the, probably the biggest issue and the biggest thing that people need to overcome. And so some things what I tell people are, um, you know, just kind of like ease into it. Easy ways to get into it are training with a heart rate monitor or using something called like the Borg scale. Um, And you don't even have to be that scientific with it. Just try and keep, you know, your pace conversational at first. If it starts to pick up, you're probably working too hard. So slow it down to, you know, a kind of a more conservative pace, or even if that means a walk. And I think that um, a lot of people kind of liken running to an outdoor activity. And we usually do that when the weather gets warmer and it gets nicer out. And then what kind of happens when it starts to get hot and humid, it's running is no fun for anybody, let alone like the person trying to get involved into the sport. So, I mean, just take it easy and don't get discouraged is kind of one of the big things that I tell people. I think one of the things that helped me get into running, and I don't know if you know this, John, but you know, I have ran two half marathons. Nice. Good for you. But one thing that helped me out was like just setting a goal, picking a race to run, whether it was a 5k or a 10k or just kind of working my way. Cause I felt like once I had like the end goal that I could work my way back and program from that. Okay. I got to get that 3.1 miles. And then I could kind of do that. What you mentioned, like the 10% rule kind of gauge it where like, this is when I need to meet that threshold. And so I think that kind of helped me gradually ease into it. It's just finding a, a race to do or, or a goal. And then you're working towards that. I absolutely agree with that. One of the things that kind of motivated me to get back into was I like had tried and failed a couple of times. So I signed up for a marathon in six or seven months. It was like, listen, like my name and my time are going to be attached to that result. So it was like a little bit like extrinsically motivated um, as well as like intrinsically. I didn't want to get out there and kind of lay a dud or that sort of stuff. So kind of found a way, like you said, to kind of merge the two where there was like an end goal where I kind of knew what I was running for as opposed to just going out for the sake of being outside. And then you mentioned heart rate, like monitoring it. And so can you kind of touch a little bit more on that and how you kind of correlate effort to like max heart rate and just kind of kind of putting in layman's terms where if you're running, and I know you said to start out, you should be conversationalist, but how do you increase that intensity and know how to do it at, at the right intensity and use kind of, kind of some cues to help yourself monitor it. So that's, that's tricky. And that's kind of a big like bugaboo for anyone getting into this sport is like people in order to run fast, you can't just casually jog every day, which I totally agree with. So that transition point could be kind of tricky, even for, um, I guess, more like experienced runners like me talking to people wanting to get into the sport. 
So I guess in just kind of like layman's terms, I would say, listen to your body. But if you're someone who's a little bit more like objectively and like data driven, um, there is something and Jack Daniels is just one of the many coaches out there that have a good framework. There's Joe V Hill, there's Arthur Lydiard. So there's a whole lot of people, but Jack Daniels is mostly, is probably the most objective. Um, so it kind of takes your max heart rate, which you can prove scientifically or you can just kind of do it in an easy version where you take the number 220 and subtract your age. And that in theory, your maximum heart rate. So then from there, Jack Daniels will say um, a certain percentage is you're going to target each of these zones. So for your easy zone, 65 to 79%, that's your, that's your easier, that's your easy zone. And then obviously the higher heart rate you get, the more stress it is on, you know, the nervous system, the musculoskeletal system, the cardiac system, any of that sort of stuff. So uh, as you kind of progress up into like the aerobic or the threshold intensities or the interval intensities, you're obviously going to need a longer break, longer rest. You're going to do fewer miles and fewer reps at those sets. But so it is, it is tricky, but I guess kind of to just get things started, if you're someone who's objectively driven or is a numbers person, 65 to 79% of that maximum heart rate is kind of where you want to target to just kind of get things going. And then from there, the Daniels formula goes into all sorts of, you know, your heart rate or your easy runs need to be X percentage of your weekly mileage, your tempos need to be X percent. So there's a whole lot you can get like pretty nuanced with it, but just for starters, I would say like focus on that number of 65 to like 80% for your easy heart rate. I've seen a lot of runners that have used, use watches that kind of monitor their pace. Do you guys actually follow, like look at your heart rate using wearable technology? And is that kind of how you monitor it? Or is it just kind of a feel? And I'm guessing that that's kind of on runner, but. That is a very good question. So my wife trains a lot off heart rate and I used to in college. I don't so much now just because I, I do most of my runs at like six in the morning. So I'm like rarely ever awake to get myself like in some of those higher heart rate zones early on. So I kind of just like becomes me looking at my watch being like, oh, I'm not even in like the easy run zone yet. So I'm like really slogging like slow jogging but um so that's that's like that's a tricky part in theory i have i guess in actuality i have like two or three heart rate monitors and my watch is charging right now but it has like a wearable uh, heart rate monitor on your wrist so i usually pay a little bit more attention to pace than i do heart rate which is not what i tell my people to do more of a do as i say not as i do for me i've just kind of found out that I have most fun if I'm just going out and kind of doing my own thing and listening to my body. My wife, on the other hand, who's a little bit, she's an engineer, so she's a little bit more data-driven. So she really likes those like heart rates and that like feedback and that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of different like strokes for different folks out there. But for me, I'm kind of a little bit more liberal with it. I don't follow it too religiously. Um, I do a little bit more like pace work and Trisha, she likes all of that like data stuff. So it's a little bit more up her alley. And I think as you get older, it's more about like whatever you're more comfortable with too, right? So whatever's going to keep you running or staying active in a, in a good intensity that'll, that'll get you a good workout. The end goal really isn't to like run faster or be a better runner. I think most people's goal is just to 
be healthier and, and try to live longer. My mind shift has started to change from my early 20s, where it was more of like being in college, trying to be a better athlete, to now it's like, okay, how can I be in a better shape? Like the longevity of the sport and longevity of activity, I'm kind of the same way. Focused on like times and goals and paces for five or six years, like pretty competitively. So on the other end of things, I'm just having fun with it, trying to get better. But at the same time, fun is the number one priority right now. And just trying to, trying to keep the dad bod at bay. And so then kind of transitioning to like our next topic about basic running principles. You know, I think there's a lot of different thought processes on what is the right way to have like initial contact, whether it's a heel strike or midfoot or like forefoot. What have you kind of been recommending to some of your patients? What have you noticed is kind of like the, the general rule of thumb? Yeah. So I usually tell people like midfoot, um, that's usually the desired approach, you know, without, I think, I'm sure that there's a ton of literature, which you can go back and look at. But I think at this point in 2021, it's pretty well known that we want more of a midfoot strike. So it's just, it's kind of known. And I haven't had to go back and look at the data or the, any of the research. So I haven't, so I can't point to anything specifically, but it's just kind of one of those things that's, that's pretty well accepted at this point in the game is that you know the midfoot is most efficient midfoot striking pattern but by all means you know the forefoot or the hind foot striking pattern aren't wrong there's just a different way to do it and you know everyone's got their own style i try not to mess with it unless people are coming in for repeatedly the same injuries like posterior tibialis tendonitis or achilles tendinopathies or that sort of stuff. Um, and then that's where I'll focus on, you know, trying to shorten the stride or pick up the cadence a little bit. So we're taking those people from a heel strike to more of a midfoot strike and just trying some stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, heel strike isn't necessarily a bad thing. It always kind of naturally happens within the length of a race or throughout the portion of a, of a run. As we get more tired, we just, we get that turnover is, is not as quick. So we kind of start getting a longer stride. And then as you can kind of appreciate, we're more landing on the heel as opposed to like the ball or the midfoot. So it's, um, it happens naturally. So it's not anything to avoid or anything to freak out about. I try not to over-focus on it unless I'm seeing someone come in for repeated injuries. Do you think there's a direct correlation between initial contact and cadence. So you kind of, you kind of mentioned that the slower the cadence, the longer the stride, more likely heel strike pattern versus quicker turnover, more midfoot, forefoot, and then you're not really shorter stride. I would feel, I'd feel pretty confident in saying that again, you know, I'm sure that there's like data to support it one way or another, but I would just say like anecdotally, that's something that I have um, seen work for me and even just reading books. There's one book, I think it's by like Jay Decarius. It's like uh, anatomy for runners. And that's actually like a pretty easy read for even clinicians. We can appreciate, you know, we read paperwork all day or speak in big fancy terms. So he does a good job of just kind of dumbing it down for you and even just making reading it fun and enjoyable, even as a clinician. But yeah, so he talks a little bit about picking up the cadence when we have chronic heel injuries like plantar fasciitis or post like PTTD or something like that. So the desired cadence is somewhere between 170 and 180. And generally speaking, the faster you run, the higher your cadence is. 
And obviously there's a bell curve. We don't want to have somebody be striking at 200 beats per minute for the entire length of an easy run. So that's like, that's usually what I tell people is, you know, hop on a treadmill, put a download a metronome app and just kind of like let it play and you don't have to tune in for it the whole time, you know, mute it and then just come back to it a couple minutes later and just make sure that you're somewhere on pace about that 170 to that 180 beats per minute. That's a great idea. I think what I've seen in the past is they've talked about like, Oh, like if you use Spotify, like you can pick a playlist with a certain beats per minute. And, you know, I've tried that. And then I just realized I'm listening to a bunch of songs. I don't really want to listen to. And then I'm like, all right, well, this isn't working for me. I think I did the exact same thing on like Pandora or Spotify. So honestly, what was most successful for me, especially because I have kind of deal with like post tip stuff a whole lot for one reason or another it's not just a thing that i've never like totally kicked in the last couple of years but every now and then you know i'll have youtube on one or like my shows on my ipad on one and then i'll just when it's a commercial i'll just put up the metronome on my phone and just kind of check in every you know however often a commercial happens every eight to 12 minutes or something like that so that's like one way kind of a trick that i found because i was exactly like you i put on youtube and was like dude i don't care about this song this is horrible what is this so let's kind of talk a little bit more about the super shoes i think this is going to be a pretty interesting topic because what i've read in the past and we'll get more in detail after you kind of go more about the super shoes but i read you know the book born to run by christopher mcdougall and he laid out some pretty good points about you know why we should kind of train barefoot running. A lot of those points, you know, there was that big lawsuit with Virum a while ago where they actually increased injury rate. But theoretically, a lot of that made sense. And now, you know, like you've kind of said before we hopped on the podcast that, you know, a lot of these major shoe companies are investing a lot of money into these super shoes. So, John, can you kind of enlighten us on like what exactly is the super shoe and why that's kind of become all the rage? So a super shoe in short is it's a high stack height. So that's like the heel of your shoe. That's the foam where the, where your, your foot kind of sits on the insole. The, the stack height is all of that foam or just all of that rubber from where your foot sits to the ground. So that's called a stack height. So Nike and Saucony and I guess like Hoka, One One and just all these other big shoe. I think everyone's in on it now. They have these big old stack heights. And so from there, they can kind of load up, you know, one, two, three, or four carbon plates, I think is what we're up to now. And so it's interesting because again, in my reading, I had thought that the carbon fiber plates was like the big thing. And we had found out that it's actually the super responsive foam, which is, it kind of decreases fatigue. It's a little bit, you get a little bit more energy return and it just helps disperse the forces. So you're not overloading your you know, your, your posterior chain or your intrinsic foot muscles. So your recovery is super easy and fatigue takes a lot longer. And then the benefit of the carbon fiber plate is when you start to get that like toe off, it just acts as like a little bit of a spring to propel you forward. So here I was thinking the Nike shoes with four carbon plates are obviously better when in reality, it's everyone's individualized, just like the shoe and, you know, more carbon plates isn't necessarily better because it has to do with you know, the type of foam that's being used and how your running economy is affected by 
the carbon fiber plate, the high stack height, um, the heel drop, and the carbon the carbon inside. So there's a ton of factors going into it. So then I think what's interesting about that is like you're saying it improves performance and you're pretty much making the shoe thicker. And so it's more responsive and, and creates more energy, you know, with ground reaction forces. And in the Born to Run book, and I'll give you a little synopsis. Basically, there was this tribe in Mexico called the Terahumara uh, tribe in the Mexican Copper Canyons. And they found that these, these runners were able to run ultra distant marathons, like basically over a hundred miles without injuries. And the theory was that these modern cushion shoes actually are a major cause of running because it kind of decreased your intrinsic muscle activation. Um, your muscles were kind of becoming weaker because they were relying too much on the cushion of the shoes. And so then it kind of, after this book came out in like 2009, it kind of started this whole fad where people were kind of transitioning to, you know, these minimalistic runners, running shoes. I think Vibram was like one of the big, one of the big brands to start out. And then we're kind of seeing now where shoe companies are like, this is the future. You said times are improving. And so why do you think, that's kind of been the transition it is that is such a good question and um kind of like we had talked off air that running is in a little bit of a crossroads right now because for a while um in the you know the 2000s the early 2000s maybe even 2012 2015 ish again just kind of just kind of guesstimating um people were trying to get thinner shoes and you know a little bit more neutral a little less of a steep drop kind of wider toe box to free the toes as as some people will say and then all of a sudden people invested this all this technology into these super shoes which are literally the exact opposite they're narrow they're tight they're not a whole lot on the upper so the upper is where your laces like they all attach to that's called the upper so the upper is pretty delicate and you know you have a lot of cushion and a lot of beef on the bottom of your shoe so it's actually kind of kind of like paradox from from where we started in the you know at the turn of the century to kind of where we're ending up now where the shift has gone i'm i'm not sure what entirely inspired it other than just fast times just to try and pick up the cadence and pick up the running economy but i'm kind of with you when we had talked off air like there's a lot of benefits to running in like a neutral shoe or running in a zero drop shoe with a wide toe box to just kind of let those foot intrinsics help out and kind of bear some of the brunt. It's, it is kind of tricky and it, people on like either ends of things where people are buying, investing all this money in these super shoes and, you know, they're $270 a pop. And then there's people on the other side where, you know, they're kind of so adverse to the super shoes and they're wearing all these zero drop stuff with, but they're not producing the times, but they have a little bit, they're a little bit more of efficient as a runner. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting where it would be interesting where um, research kind of takes us in the next couple of years to show us what ends up being better for you. And I think like all research, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. I would agree with that. And I think a lot of people are starting to see that, you know, where we're training in minimalist shoes or we're training in a less beefy shoe. And then just kind of saving those big expensive shoes for race day when, you know, we have a marathon or we have a half marathon, 
you know, it's tough to be efficient for 13.1 miles or 26.2. So that's where we need a little bit of the shoe technology to help us along. Yeah, because I definitely see the value in being barefoot. And so maybe doing some like short runs where, you know, you're using, you know, your intrinsic muscles a little bit more using, you know, your gastroxoleus complex more to kind of disperse the ground reaction forces. And then, and, and when I say like a few miles, I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, we're meant to be in a shoe. Like that's how we're, we've like evolved. You know, we've been in shoes since we were little. So like, you're not going to go from not going from no shoe to barefoot. Like that, I think that's just too much, but I think going from, you know, maybe when you warm up and you're on, and then you're at a track or something in the infield, you know, you're not wearing shoes. You're, you're doing your dynamic warm ups without shoes on. So you can kind of get a feel for how your foot is moving and kind of contacting the ground. And then, you know, maybe, you know, a mile or two, just kind of getting those muscles working, but not enough where you're going to injure yourself. And I think that that's really important. Um, so if anyone's listening to this, or even if you, Nate, yourself are interested in some like a brand like Ultra or Topo or um, something like that, or Vibrams, where it's, they truly are kind of like a minimalist shoe, you know, if you're like interested in that, it is important to ease into it because it does put a little bit more strain on the Achilles initially. Because um, think about it, if you have a little bit of a of a heel drop, you kind of your your foot isn't traveling into dorsiflexion as much as it would if your foot's totally flat. So you make a good point. Like it's for just general foot and ankle and gastroxoleus complex um, kind of health. It's important to you know, train different ways, um, different, being different shoe wear and, you know, kind of embrace the barefoot movement, at least in some capacity. And so John, the last part of this segment, because we're kind of running out of time is, you know, the hot take segment, three, three questions and just kind of rapid fire. And uh, we'll go from there. For sure. All right. Question one, favorite brand of running shoe. So this is, in the interest of keeping it short and sweet, I am kind of transitioning right now. I was wearing a lot of Ultra because it helped initially with my post-tib kind of stuff. But after having like two calf injuries and, you know, a year never having that happen before, I've kind of been switching a little bit more towards like a Mizuno wave runner. I think the 24 is what we're out to now. And I like that because you can get a nice wide toe box while so you can kind of again in quotes free the feet free the toes but you get a little bit more of it's a little less like pressure on your achilles but there is also a shoe brand called topo and they are kind of like ultra but they have a little bit of a heel on them so i haven't yet tried them because they're a little expensive for me to buy as a trial shoe but that is another one that's kind of been on my radar if i can ever get my hands on it so the next question one piece of advice you're going to give someone that is looking to get into running recreationally. Yeah. So my big thing is don't start off too fast. People try and run seven minute mile pace. Um, and it's hard because you're not in shape to do that. It's not sustainable from an injury prevention standpoint, nor from like a mental standpoint, if you're just constantly struggling along, I'd say, take it easy, use the heart rate monitor, kind of gauge your effort and that sort of stuff, or even, you know, have a friend nearby to keep you honest for that conversational pace. Plus, like misery loves company. So if you're out there and it sucks, at least there's two of you. And then the last question, and this is this is a deep, 
deep dive right here. So in 2012, you placed third in the 3000 meter race in the Sudanak championships. The world record holder is Daniel Komen from Kenya. And in 1996, he ran with a time of seven minutes and 20 seconds. How far of a head start would you need to beat Daniel Komen? This is this is a tricky one. So now I would need a, a big old amount of big old amount of time. I would say probably 800 meters. So two laps on the outdoor track. But yeah, so his PR is about like 68 seconds more than mine. So uh, I guess back in the heyday, I would have needed about one lap on the track, about 400 meters. But now it's certainly much much less or much much more. And then the second part to that question is how much better of a runner would you have been if you were born with two kidneys? So as much of us like this is probably supposed to be a non-issue, we've actually caused a little bit of a stir in my house because, you know, like your kidneys, they stimulate erythropoietin production and the long bones in hypoxic conditions. So like when, you know, you're low on oxygen and that sort of stuff, I kind of was getting on my wife because I was wanting to legally acquire some EPO and she didn't love that. But I thought like in theory, I made a good point for me only having one kidney is not stimulating the EPO production in my long bones as much as much, but Actually, when in reality, I, my one kidney is probably doing just fine, but still it, it is actually like funny you asked that because we were talking about that maybe not even like four or five days ago. So do you think uh, Lance Armstrong was trying to convince people that he was taking EPO because he only had one testicle? Do you think he's trying yeah. to come up with some rationalization for that? I'm not sure like how he defended his case, but in terms of like, and it's been so long since I've like looked over the endocrine system and that sort of stuff but i'm sure at some point there's going to be an endocrinologist that would talk that would say there may have been some benefit or there may have been some medical benefit to him taking that i know they give epo to people who have cancer or are like i guess probably to be a little bit more sensitive um they like people who are you know being treated for cancer will often take epo to just kind of stimulate some healing and that sort of stuff so I know it's like not unheard of for it to be medically prescribed in such a way, but uh, in terms of, of me, I'm not, not much of a big Lance Armstrong guy. What he did for um, like the Livestrong Foundation is super honorable, but other than that, you're not going to see me go into bat for him. Yeah, he's not a very honorable guy. Certainly, um, he's not have a friend in, in this neck of the woods here in Albany, New York. So John, I want to thank you for joining the podcast. I think it was, this was very enlightening. I, I enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed learning more about running and kind of the, the principles and kind of where running's heading just as an industry. Uh, and so thanks, thanks for hopping on. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. I could literally talk about this all day. Thank you for listening to the Cross Talk Podcast. The music was produced by Scott Holmes. I'm your host, Nate Reynolds. You can find more great content on the energy.health Instagram and also on my website, energyhealth.fit. Until next time, continue to prioritize your health.